This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we're going to talk about a topic that is ubiquitous in the news and ubiquitous in our public discourse, but often rarely interrogated. And we're going to have the chance to interrogate this topic today, as we do every week with every topic. Uh, This is the topic of evangelical religion. You can't read about American politics without reading about evangelicals and their supposed influence one way or another. Uh, We're joined today by, I think now it's fair to say, one of the foremost scholars of evangelical religion in American politics, particularly the role of dispensationalists. And Dan will talk to us about who they are. Uh, This is Dr. Daniel Hummel, who is a major scholar in the field of religion and politics and international affairs. He is the director of university engagement at Upper House a Christian study center serving the wider University of Wisconsin-Madison community. Dan is the author of two books that I highly recommend uh, to everyone, two books that I know very, very intimately, in fact. Dan's first book, which was his dissertation, I was one of the professors who worked with him on, is Covenant Brothers, Evangelical Jews and U.S.-Israeli Relations. I was really very privileged to be one of the professors. Dan wrote this dissertation and researched this dissertation with, and it it really brings out, at least for me, a deeper understanding of the religious connections between Christians in the United States and a certain group of Jews in Israel, and how that relationship is crucial for understanding U.S.-Israeli relationship. I've not seen any other book that does this, so I highly recommend that. And then Dan's most recent book is The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism, How the Evangelical Battle Over the End Times Shaped a Nation, Shaped the American Nation. It's a brand new book. I just finished reading it, and it's, it's extraordinary the detail at which it explains the ideas and faith claims that underpin so much of religion and politics in American society today. Dan writes, in addition to books, major articles you can find in the Washington Post, Christian Today, Religion News Service, as well as more academic venues, religion in American culture, church history, and many, many others. Uh, Dan, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Good to be with you, Jeremy. Thank you, Dan. Uh, It's a kind of reunion. Also, we haven't talked in a little while, so I'm glad we're doing this. Zachary, of course, you have a poem to start us out, yes? Yes. What's the title of your poem? A Dispensation for the Dispensationalists. (laughs) Wow. Wow. (laughs) I'm wrapping my, my head around that tongue twister. Okay, let's hear it. We came here on boats as if hope alone floats. In big cramped quarters we must have smelled so foul We landed, picked up the trowel, and built your automatics Your John Forders, your all sorters So we might taste this freedom of yours for a bit Borders, if you will, in the grand boarding house of liberty Where anything can happen for the right fee Now I'm told they say they'd like to see us reach the Jordan So we might hold to the whole of holy land They say they'd like to watch us build a temple, so someday they can burn it all to sand. They say at last they'd like to send me homeward, so I can die in some fantastical last stand. 
but bury me and place the stones on a grave in Kalamazoo. Fold my things and lie them there way down in Chattanooga. And when I'm old and tired, please let me die in Honolulu, for I shall never leave this God-forsaken land if only for the sake of ruining such a stupid plan. <laughs> <laughs> You you are in the last few weeks, Zachary, really becoming quite the satirist, aren't you? Yes. <laughs> so, uh, tell tell us about this poem. What is well, it about? This poem is about me as an American Jew who's often quite dissatisfied with this country, uh, coming to terms with what it means to be a Jew in a in a country so dominated by Christianity, or at least a particular version of Christianity. And at the very least, I think, if I'm perfectly honest, a lot of it. Uh, it comes from living out of spite or, or <laughs> living in spite of 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 perceived slights etc and and i think that that's a part of the judeo christian relationship if you will that that maybe isn't explored enough but but also i think connects to the ways in which these uh, religious divisions uh, influence our politics and the way that that our not just our worldview but our ideology takes shape sure sure very well said uh, dan any reactions Oh, wow. Yeah, many reactions. Uh, first, on that last point about the Judeo-Christian tradition, it just reminds me of, um, I believe his name was Arthur Cohen. He was just a writer in the in the 1970s on religion in America. And he, he contested the idea that there was such a thing as the Judeo-Christian tradition, because for most of the last 2000 years, Christians have hated Jews. And that tradition was a construct of the mostly the mid 20th century and Cold War politics and other things. So, Zachary, I think you're your tension is is not only felt by you, I guess. Uh, I'd say uh, historically, <laughs> um, and then I, you know, on the on the poem itself, the first thing that came to mind was, as we'll get into, dispensationalists are people traditionally who were very heavenly minded. You could say they were focused in their theology on getting to heaven, and that that was really the purpose of being a Christian was to to get to heaven. And so the the first part of your poem is very earthy and descriptive, and I I don't think they'd maybe identify uh, with, with, with that uh, <laughs> directly. And then you, you mentioned Kalamazoo and Chattanooga, I think. Is that Chattanooga? Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and if, if you read the book, I, I do have a geographical sort of thrust to the story or an arc to the story that actually starts in the what I call the Great Lakes Basin, but basically the Midwest, including parts of Canada, which is really where this theology in the 19th century picks up. And then the one of the more fascinating subplots that was interesting for me to study was how dispensationalism travels southward and really by today it would be to the outsider it would seem like it's a sort of native southern theology but that's actually really far from the truth so just thinking of sort of the the way that this set of ideas has traveled over the last 150 years uh kalamazoo and chattanooga are actually pretty good <laughs> pretty good stand-ins for uh the breadth of the tradition that's really interesting i don't know if you did you intend that zachary not at all <laughs> it's very hard to find three city names in the united states that rhyme <laughs> i'm not sure i accomplished that stuff. <laughs> you made them rhyme you made them right so so dan i think this is a great place to start because uh no you as I do, I know that you're someone who's a deep believer, but you're also someone who, who's inclusive in the way you view how different religions and different faiths should work. And you're also someone who believes deeply in academic and scholastic study. That comes through in, in your book, of course. Can you tell us what Upper House is in that context, just to situate how, how you, you enact this in your own life? 
Yeah. Well, first of all, to the listeners, Jeremy, you're the, you're really the reason I'm I'm even in Madison, right? So I came in 2010 to study with you and then stayed here until I finished in 2016. And Upper House was actually founded in 2015 here on just across the street, actually from the old or the, the history department building, uh, the humanities building. And uh, we're a Christian study center. So we are overtly Christian in our orientation and we are a study center, which means we really value the life of the mind and we value exploring ideas that are related to questions of faith, questions of identity, questions of philosophy, and how academic disciplines explore those ideas. And so we, we host speakers, we host sort of groups of students that are going through really dense, difficult books. We're trying to give students who are identify as Christian on campus the ability to supplement all the really good learning they're happening that's happening at UW with some equally rigorous, we hope, study in the tradition of Christian thought. But we also see ourselves as, uh, to, to borrow an older term, a third space in Madison where people from different backgrounds can come and engage in civic dialogue and explore the big questions, we call them, the questions of meaning, the questions of existence, in a way that lets everyone bring their whole selves into the space. So um, whether that means you're a Christian or uh, some other tradition or no tradition at all, we think uh, a lot of these big questions are relevant to all of us. And we really try to steward our reputation and, and our space as a place where anyone is welcome any time of the year. And Dan, do you see that as a mainstream approach? Because to, to some, myself included, it often appears as if, and, and I'm not singling out one group or another, but it often seems as if religion is put against learning and against intellectual life in our world today. Yeah, I think your your instincts are pretty accurate. We we definitely are, exist as part of a larger tradition. There's actually a consortium of Christian study centers that are on many large university campuses, but there is there's many counter pressures or countervailing pressures that push uh, most Christians, many Christians in the US toward polarization, toward, you know, sitting in tribal camps, toward culture wars types type ways of framing the university. And I find it a privilege and, and a joy, even in the difficult times, to, to be someone who's trying to articulate a different vision for how faith and religion can engage with the university, that there's actually a mutual benefit that happens, and that the university, uh, UW in particular, is ultimately better if there are thinking religious people engaged on campus and around campus at places like Upper House. And am I reading your new book correctly to say that or to to interpret that uh, much of what you're implicitly critiquing is, is part of the story of the rise and fall of dispensationalism for you? Yeah. Dispensationalism is a particular theological tradition that has had a lot of purchase in the white evangelical world for the last 150 years or so. And it's really, in my reading, it really has collapsed as a an academic intellectual project in the last generation. I, I date it to the 90s. You could quibble and say maybe it was the 2000s. And so we're living in the wake of a sort of collapse in a lot of evangelical thinking, and there's a vacuum. And it's not to say that dispensationalism, which we can get into, isn't, it's not necessarily a, a theology that I would endorse, but it did give a, a coherent worldview to many Christians. And we're living in the collapse of that worldview. And there have been many things that have filled that vacuum. This is my reading, including 
a capitulation to a, a type of con- consumer commercial Christianity and a type of nationalistic politics. And these are even more influential in the evangelical world because there is such a dearth of theological engagement by millions of, of evangelicals uh, across the country. So that's that's sort of my analysis. And I, I wrote the book in part because I grew up in this world and I actually wanted to take it seriously, um, but also because I could sort of from my vantage point, I, I was pretty sure that part of the way forward for evangelicals is to understand this history and to sort of consciously undertake the project of building a new theology that can actually address some of the core issues that are troubling the community today. Well, and I think your your book really provides a long arc for what you've just described so succinctly. Uh, you start with the period right after the Civil War, and that's really where, at least for me, you defined what dispensationalism was or is. What, what are we talking about here? Yeah, and, and I think in, in popular understanding, the what most people would know about dispensationalism is that it has a unique teaching called the rapture, or the any moment rapture, which is this idea that at any moment, including during the recording of this very podcast, all true believers, all true Christians would suddenly disappear and be in heaven with Jesus. And that that would set off a timeline of sort of catastrophic events that would ultimately lead to the rise of an antichrist dictator and ultimately lead to the Battle of Armageddon, and really the whole world is destroyed and then remade anew. And this set of teachings has been very popular in movie, in Hollywood movies and, and other things. That's just one part of the dispensational theological system. And it's a system because it touches on sort of all aspects of Christian theology. And the key part for the, the beginning of the story for the post-Civil War era is to understand that dispensationalism offered a very otherworldly understanding of the church that uh, of what it meant to be part of a church that allowed pastors who adopted the theology to really stay silent on the hot issues of the day and in the 1860s and 1870s that was slavery and then reconstruction and racial justice and for many pastors and I, i particularly identify pastors who were in states that were in the north but had a strong southern sympathy this theory of the church, this way of understanding the church as an entirely heavenly people that should have nothing to do with politics, was especially appealing to pastors who were looking for a way to hold their churches together after the Civil War. And that's really the the original appeal of the dispensational system. It wasn't necessarily about decoding the end times, but once you once they adopted sort of the church part of the theology over the next generation or so, they also strongly adopted the end times part of the theology and many other parts as well. But that, that's sort of, that was one of the contributions I tried to make is try to understand why this theology becomes popular in America in the 1860s and 1870s and not, for example, 20 years before that or 20 years after that. And I think the answer there has a lot to do with reconstruction and racial politics in the U.S. So so how does this, this belief system become merged or at least connected to a particular set of, of political beliefs? And in particular, how does this belief system uh, maybe conflict or parallel Americans' principles or uh, lack of respect for uh, a principle of separation of church and state how do those how do those two connect yeah well any any theology has an implicit politics to it so that there was you know this is part of the interesting thing about 
the 1870s is is staying silent on reconstruction really was a politics of reconstruction right it was a desire to get past reconstruction it was a desire to reconcile between northern and southern whites and and there were particular reasons why dispensationalists basically wanted that to happen and a lot of it had to do with engaging with global missions and finding racial politics to be sort of a speed bump on the way to to global missions. And so prioritizing that over race. And so there, there's an implicit racial politics that is in the, the theology of dispensationalism. And yet at the same time, for most of these early dispensationalists, which is different than later generations, there was a very strong understanding that the church was separate from the state and that really the Christian should not be involved in, in politics as such. They should not be necessarily politicians. Voting was actually sometimes discouraged because within the theology, the ultimate loyalty of the Christian was to the church. But we see, that we see looking back, and, and many people understood it at the time, that you can't actually get out of politics. Claiming that you had nothing to say about politics was often a way of endorsing the status quo. And over the generations, that's often what dispensationalists did, particularly when it came to issues of race, is they would endorse the status quo. And as a largely white Christian community, that would often be a status quo that was beneficial to them. Uh, and they, they, weren't, they didn't have a theology or a theory or a, or a sort of social critique that gave them any impetus to be active on working for racial justice or, or even uh, racial equality. One of the really interesting parts of your book for me, and it's interesting because it's a period both you and I have spent a lot of time thinking about, uh, is the period after World War II, mm. which in some ways is as interesting as I think the period after the Civil War. These might be two of the, the key fulcrums for so many changes in American politics and democracy. You write around page 214 about how the dispensational leaders across America, this is just on the eve of Billy Graham's rise, how they do become more political active in criticizing progressive politics and calling for the United States to remain a dominant world power. What shift is happening after World War II? Yeah, and, the, and people like William Bell Riley, who's a very famous fundamentalist minister in the Minneapolis city area, was key to this. And uh, one of the things that is a through line from the post-Civil War period to the post-World War II period is that dispensationalists understood their highest calling to be missions, evangelization, converting people into Christians. And th this took on a different implications for sort of national and international politics. By the end of World War II and the, the sort of dawn of the Cold War, anti-communism uh, becomes a key way that, or, or the threat of communism becomes a key way that dispensationalists understand the world, and particularly as a threat to their highest calling, uh, global missions. And so in some ways, that that is the answer uh, to the question, is that communism becomes such a threat to the missions enterprise that many fundamentalists and dispensationalists who were sitting on the sidelines in earlier periods decided that this was such an existential threat that they needed to uh, join the fray. But someone like Riley, also William Bell Riley, the person I mentioned before, also is a key to a more a less defensive or reactive posture and more of an active posture in that Riley was also a conspiracy theorist and a virulent anti-Semite and someone who even going back to the 1910s was looking at the globe 
and seeing all types of threats and conspiracies that were, in his view, designed to uh, destroy the church. And so he's someone who did not need World War II or even World War I to get politically active. Uh, he was someone who embedded a conspiratorial way of seeing the world with his largely apocalyptic theology to basically call Christians to action to combat these conspiracies. And so he was someone who promoted the protocols of the elders of Zion, even though those were widely discredited. He was someone who openly supported Hitler in the 1930s. And then he was someone who was a strong anti-communist in the 1940s before he died and really embedded that particular set of politics in his theology. Reading your section on William Bell Riley, who I must confess I did not know very much about until until your book. Now I know a lot more about him. You describe his hand in hand pairing of theology and politics, which is just the opposite of the separation of church and state that Zachary was just talking about. And you also make a lot out of his use of radio shows, back to the Bible, radio Bible class hour through the Bible, and it, it reminded me, Dan, of Father Coughlin. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there is there a parallel here? Um, there's certainly a parallel in a shared Christian anti-Judaism that runs through both of those personalities. I think a bigger and in- really interesting parallel is the use of, of media, in that case, radio, before that, mass print media, after that, television, and ultimately the internet. Dispensationalists have been just masters at adopting the newest form of media to get their message out. And sometimes they've been at the forefront of of these particular types of communications media. Later people like Jerry Falwell, who helped found the Christian right, was very early adopter of, of computers to help rationalize his communications and uh, his sort of uh, mailing lists. But this has been just a consistent theme in the history of dispensationalism, is that because of their overriding concern for getting the word out, for spreading the gospel as they understand it, they are eager to adopt media and to use media and exploit media in a sort of mass uh, popular way. And so some of the most popular radio shows in the 1940s and 50s were dispensationalist-inspired radio shows. Often they were basically daily Bible commentary shows, but were mixed in with commentary on the daily news. And so the the merging of scripture and politics was you know, a daily affair for, for many of those radio shows. And do you see in this period as well as dispensationalism becomes an increasingly prominent religious belief, if not widespread, politicians trying to appeal to dispensationalist voters or a particular kind of social conservatism they display? And and how do you think that, that this movement began to shape American policy as a whole? Yeah, in some ways, dispensationalists were unremarkable conservatives, in some ways, the sort of literal meaning of, of the word conservative. I mentioned they, they often endorse the status quo. Unlike other Christian traditions that have a very strong social critique or critique of culture, dispensationalists tended not to, and that goes back to that division between the church and the world that is at the heart uh, of the theology. But that's not to say that they didn't have a politics, as we've talked about, and also that that they weren't very attractive or appealing as a as a religious subgroup to American politicians. And you you see this later in the 20th century, where 
someone like Ronald Reagan, who is often rumored in news media to actually be a dispensationalist. This is sort of a, a scandal because of the apocalyptic uh, worldview of dispensationalism. What if our, you know, if our president has that worldview, what does that, what does that mean for our, our foreign policy? I don't really think Reagan was a systematic thinker uh, on these things, but he was very strategic in, in appealing to some of the more pessimistic ways of sort of the, the direction of the world that would align with dispensationalist beliefs. And uh, at various times also uh, reference theologians or writers from the dispensationalist tradition that would be uh, well known to, to people uh, in that world. The other major president that is often uh, was rumored to have links to dispensationalism was George W. Bush. I, I'm, a, I'm a, again, pretty dubious that Bush himself held to any particular end times theology. Uh, he wasn't a theologian uh, on that front. But he certainly um, invoked images and rhetoric, including the idea of a crusade, which of course he backtracked on, but still used it and uh, had its effect, that would have aligned with a dispensationalist understanding of what was going on in the world. So I think at the highest levels of of state leadership, there's definitely a story to tell there. I think the broader story is how dispensationalism actually adapted to become a viable part of the Christian right as a sort of a grassroots movement that gave a lot of the verve to conservative politics in the 1970s and 1980s. And I have to say, Dan, to me, that was one of the most interesting parts of your book. Before you get to Bush, who you talk about uh, in, I think, the last chapter, the second mm-hmm. to last chapter, you spend a lot of time on Billy Graham, who, for those who don't know Billy Graham, you you can't think of a more influential religious figure, I think, in American society post-war than, than Billy Graham. I think on personal relations or close personal relations with every president, mm-hmm. um, prominent figure in all kinds of settings. And then Hal Lindsey, who's largely forgotten to history, but as you point out, probably sold more books, uh, the late great planet Earth, than almost any other author of his time. And he is the person who apparently Ronald Reagan was talking about when he talked about dispensationalism at different right. times. So so how do we understand these figures and their role and their connection to dispens- dispensationalism? Yeah, one interesting fact about Graham is that he was the uh, successor to William Bell Riley in in the sense that when Riley died in 1948, he had handpicked Billy Graham who at that time was a less well-known revivalist who was traveling around the country to be his successor at his his college in Minneapolis, uh, Northwestern College. So Graham has a direct connection to Riley in that sense. But Graham became, yeah, the the most influential evangelical, maybe most influential religious figure in the late second half of the 20th century. And uh, Graham's relationship to dispensationalism is that he grew up basically a dispensationalist, and his early revivals taught that there would be a rapture at any moment, and that that was one reason why listeners needed to convert was because you didn't want to be left behind, and this gave an urgency to to not just individual conversion, but to the Cold War, because communist societies wouldn't allow missionaries into them, and so we needed to sort of support the the downfall of communism in order to allow uh, more missionaries to enter those countries. So that that was certainly part of his earlier his early career. We're talking about the 1940s, 1950s. Graham gradually moves away from that theology, and he is a major figure. He's like a planet that everyone orbits in the evangelical world, and so. 
for his entire career, there were prominent people around him and in other parts of the many organizations that he ran that were dispensationalist and, and held to those views. But you definitely see a shift in the 60s and 70s and 80s where Graham is moving away from that sort of otherworldly theology and getting much more invested in a, you could say, a thisworldly understanding of what the Christian's role is. And so by the, you know, by the 1980s, Graham is visiting the Soviet Union. He's, he's visiting Jewish and Christian communities behind the Iron Curtain. He is at calling for a nuclear freeze. He is concerned about the environment. And you just have a much different issue set for someone like Graham uh, as he develops into a, a major world leader. For Hal Lindsey, uh, who is a much different character, largely a, a media figure, Hal Lindsey uh, went to the key seminary for dispensationalism, Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, right in your uh, neck of the woods, uh, Jeremy. It's where your dad your dad went to school there too, right? My yeah. dad went to school there. A, a lot of it, it's a very large it's a it's a very large school, um, one of the largest seminaries in the in the country. A lot of people went there. Not everyone who goes there comes out like any school. Uh, believing everything the school teaches. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, um, but but it's certainly been seen as the major intellectual center for dispensationalism. And Hal Lindsey uh, went there. He was a, um, a tugboat captain turned, uh, turned theologian. And he ended up becoming a, a campus ministry worker at UCLA, where he really honed a message. This is in the 60s. Uh, he honed a message to appeal to counterculture uh, students at UCLA and turned that into a book. And he crucially had a co-writer uh, named Carol Carlson, uh, who really helped him uh, turn uh, turn his basically notes of talks into a book. And it was called The Lake Great Planet Earth. And it basically popularized the very dense, sophisticated uh, end times theology of dispensationalism into a very accessible uh, uh, vocabulary and presentation. He called the rapture um, the ultimate trip. Uh, he called the Antichrist the future fearer, um, sort of a, a, a pop culture version of the theology. And this goes on to be the best-selling nonfiction book of the 1970s. It sells over 10 million copies. Um, it's hitting right at the moment that an, a lot of other sort of negative or pessimistic books about the future are hitting, including uh, Alvin Toffler's Future Shock and The Population Bomb came out a few years before. So there's a lot in the air about sort of a pessimism about the future. And uh, Lindsay in, in, that, in, in The Lake Great Planet Earth isn't explicitly political. He's very much interested in politics and he's talking about Middle East wars and the Cold War and all that kind of stuff. But his real solution or his real call for Christians is to be faithful and spread the gospel uh, because he's still in that sort of uh, traditional dispensationalist mode. He writes another book in... 1980, called the 1980s, Path to Armageddon or something like that, where he basically represents the exact same popularized end times theology, but uh, he has a very strong call to action for Christians, that they need to start voting in Christians into office, and uh, and they need to be upholding conservative values like uh, traditional family values, as he calls them, and uh, lower taxation and and he's he's basically uh, switching his his 
mode from 1970 to 1980 into one that is very activist and very political. And he ultimately is a big supporter of Ronald Reagan and the nuclear buildup in the early uh, 1980s and really sets uh, a lot of the terms. Uh, he's not the only one for sure, but he's, he's a very popular figure at that time who's setting a lot of the terms of more broadly conservative politics uh, in the early 1980s. So is it fair, Dan, with particular attention to Billy Graham and Hal Lindsey and, and Jerry Falwell, who you've also mentioned, who was a, obviously a pioneering tele-evangelist, uh, is it fair to associate these figures and perhaps dispensationalist influence with the rise of what historians call the new right in the 1970s and 80s, the, the, the remaking of the Republican Party post-Goldwater as a party that's less elitist and, quite frankly, more, more Christian, more, more explicitly Christian and evangelical in its tone and in its issues, such as prayer in school, the American flag, and all these issues that it, that it brings forth. Is, is this a fair connection? It is a fair connection. It, it's complicated, of course. So dispensationalists aren't the only types of Christians who are active in the 1970s, uh, getting more politically active uh, on conservative politics. But I think there's an unavoidable, inescapable uh, dispensationalist flavor to the arguments that are being made within the uh, Christian conservative world in the 1970s and 80s. And these largely uh, revolve around the idea, uh, once again, of threats to the global missions project, and that uh, communism is still on the horizon, and that's a that's a major threat. But the other threat uh, that is looming even larger is what uh, Tim LaHaye, who who's one of the major activists at the time, uh, calls uh, secular humanism, and this is a, an amalgamation of sort of all the the bad people uh, for for the for for this group, <laughs> uh, which include outright secularists, people who reject religion, who they find troublesome. Um, all different types of progressives and, and political liberals who they find uh, to be sort of eroding the foundations of American values. Um, it also includes communists. It also includes, um, uh, you know, Hollywood actors and, and others that they would all find as sort of degrading. And, and LaHaye made extensive lists of, of everyone who would be involved. Uh, many government officials, the education system, um, a lot of the things that, that we would, it, it's not too far from some rhetoric you can hear today. Um, and so uh, that whole framing of the problem and then the solution being a sort of concerted Christian action, organized action in the political realm, um, that comes out of a particular theological argument that is rooted in dispensationalism. And again, it's not the only argument that Christians are making, but for people like Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and Tim LaHaye, who I mentioned, and Hal Lindsey, um, this, is, this is the way they decide to try to activate um, the the broader Christian community. And it's so striking that no more than 15 years before that, in the 1960s, you can get quotes from people like Jerry Falwell, who are making the exact opposite argument when it comes to right. the civil rights movement, which is that um, he has a famous uh, sermon called, um, uh, what is it called? Uh, Ministers and Marchers. And uh, he basically makes the call that no pastor should ever be found in a civil rights march uh, because these it goes back to that separation uh, of, right. of the church and the world. Um, and yet 15 years later, he's making the opposite argument, which is you better find the pastors in the pro-life march um, because of this threat of secular humanism. 
So is it the politics then which replaces the sort of traditional uh, theology, as you describe it, at this moment in the 1990s and, and early 2000s, in which your book uh, depicts a, a decline in, 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 in dispensationalism, per se? Yes, that's one, that's one way to think of the decline, is that for many millions of evangelicals, um, what, what counts as uh, theological engagement becomes largely political engagement and these arguments around politics and culture um, and commercialization. That's another strand I follow is, is just the, the massive commercial appeal of this theology. Um, there's another story about the fall that is probably uh, less interesting to those not in the evangelical world, which is about the, um, the collapse of intellectual credibility of dispensationalism within the seminary world. And this is happening at the same time, uh, the 1980s, 1990s, that there's a concerted effort by uh, other evangelicals who aren't dispensationalists but are still pretty conservative theologically. Um, they, they find dispensations to be problematic on sort of the merits of the system. And, uh, and, and they uh, sort of institutionally and intellectually outmaneuver dispensationalism to the point that uh, today, um, popular dispensationalism is very widespread, particularly in the white evangelical world. Many people don't even know the term dispensationalism, but they they, they sort of, if you ask them about their beliefs, they would reflect the influence of dispensationalism. And so you have that, you have that situation while at the very same time in the more, uh, the, the seminary halls and the, the sort of uh, lecture halls of Christian colleges, uh, this is a basically dead uh, theological system. And that's a fa that was a fascinating contrast that I tried to uh, connect and unpack in the book as well. Well, and it's fascinating to me too, and I think it's fascinating to our listeners, because in a, in a way, you're saying that the theology loses credibility as its political influence expands considerably, right? That's right. And there's a there's a, a different levels to think about that. One is that there are decisions being made by particular thinkers, writers, theologians to basically go popular, or you could even say to, to, to sort of sell out to the popularity. And so some of the credibility is lost as... Um, scholars who were considered sort of serious scholars end up trying to capitalize on the commercial potential of dispensationalism in the 1980s and 90s and actually try to sort of replicate the success of people like Hal Lindsey. Um, and so that, that's that's one way that, that those things uh, are connected. A broader one would be that um, I don't want to I don't want to overstate a previous era where you might think, you know, oh, evangelicals were just um, influenced by their theology or something like that. Th that's never been the case. But there have definitely been eras where theological uh, arguments have been more influential than others. And what you see over the late 20th century is that a community that was largely structured around theological distinctives, uh, particular beliefs about God or about the world or about the church, um, becomes more and more shaped and formed by arguments about the culture and about politics. And those things can't really, uh, they either have to go together really uh, tightly, or one is going to lose out to the other. And you see over the the late 20th century and into the 21st century, that for millions of evangelicals, um, the what defines their evangelicalism is a set of cultural positions uh, in the culture war, 
uh, or a set of uh, political positions, and and you could even say a voting habit, and um, and that's a significant shift. It's again not to idealize the previous era, but to show that there is a significant change over a fifty-year period on how evangelicals themselves are defining uh, themselves. Right, and I think that's what makes, among other things, this book so important, because I think you explain for a reader like me who's not anywhere nearly as well-read in the theology as you are, you explain two phenomena, right? You explain, first of all, the ways of thinking that seem to transfer over from one domain to another. Uh, At one point in the book, you have a couple of pages where you show the overlap in dispensationalist thinking and QAnon rhetoric. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not to say that all dispensationalists or most dispensationalists are QAnon followers, but I think you make the point that dispensationalists are overrepresented right. uh, among among some of these groups. So that so you explain that uh, as as a sort of a classic intellectual history, right? Habits of mind, but I think you also, as you just said, you you explain a kind of cultural phenomenon too, where I, I guess the the word you used earlier in this discussion, a flavor. Mm-hmm. A flavor of behavior, a flavor of seeing the world, um, becomes transferred over to what to me appear to be unlikely repositories of, of allegiance like uh, Donald Trump. Right. And that can be traced to a broader, if we want to use that, that word again, flavor of the way that dispensationalists tend to understand history and time. Um, and largely that it's, it's uh, the, the longer time uh, passes, the more chaotic and fallen the world will be until this immediate rupture point when the end times will occur. And so when dispensationalists uh, tend to look out on the culture and in politics, they tend to see narratives of decline and, uh, and in some cases, a, a sense of faithfulness or, or hopelessness um, in what's happening. You see in the Christian right with the Falwells and the, and the Tim LaHaye's um, that they, they developed a sense that there could they could do something about it, and that was to get politically active. But that was only going to be a stopgap anyway. Um, the world was still careening toward chaos um, until Jesus returned. And so in, in a lot of the rhetoric uh, you can see today in different pockets of our politics, you can see a same sort of defensive uh, posture and a sense of just assumed worsening of the situation. And from that, in sort of working out of that position, what one's politics should be. And I think that leads to conspiratorial thinking, among other things, being at sort of the core of, of, of your politics. And so when I made the connection with QAnon, it was not to say at all that um, there's a, there's a easy straight line from uh, some dispensationalist thinker to QAnon. It was to show that the pattern of of QAnon sort of understanding of history or, or of, of what's going to happen in the future um, based on the, the, the Q drops and, and all the stuff that was being dropped out there had an interesting resonance to the way that Christian right leaders f- 40 years before that were talking about what would happen in American society. And, um, and that pattern of thinking developed certain habits of mind and certain uh, predispositions towards politics that I think are the, the continuity that connects the two. Right, right. And so I think that leads to the, the, the final question. You've been very generous with your time and very insightful in, in articulating and elucidating so many of the points that you deal with in, in depth and detail in your book. Um, the question we ask every week, of course, is how is this historical framework, how is this historical research relevant for thinking about and renewing democracy today? I know, Dan, you care, care deeply 
uh, about, if I might use the term, rescuing Christianity from mm-hmm. its misuses, perhaps. And, and I feel that way about misuses of Judaism. I'm sure within every tradition, there are people who feel that way. W- what should we do? I, I struggle because uh, I find um, if, if I try to critique some of these, uh, what appear to me to be misuses uh, or, or uh, dangerous uses of, of religion, um, that it only reinforces the resistance of those ones talking to on the other side, right? Because it sounds right. like you're condescending, and maybe I am unintentionally, right? So, so, so how do we do this? How do we get beyond this? Because this is not a happy ending <laughs> where your book ends for, for democracy. Right. Well, um, you know, who comes to mind is someone who just passed away uh, this last week, uh, Tim Keller, who was a major figure for a lot of Christians. He was a, he was a pastor in New York City, um, very influential. And he, he talked a lot about, he was not a dispensationalist, by the way. He was, he was a, um, uh, a pretty widely, uh, widely respected, uh, uh, pastor and and figure, um, he often talked about um, Christians should follow a third way. Uh, what he what he said in in politics, and that was to um, uh, attempt to uh, ground Christian thinking around culture and politics in biblical categories, as opposed to categories that might dominate our current. Uh, political debate, and those categories would often uh, transcend or or uh, cut across some of the traditional lines that we draw in our politics. Um, but they would be rooted in a sense of the uh, dignity of each person, uh, and in a sort of faith in the ability for humans to cooperate and reason together. And this got Keller a lot of flack from basically every side. Um, he was considered too liberal uh, by many Christians. He was considered far too conservative on some of his views by many liberals. Um, but he had his own following, and he influenced people like me to really um, think critically about the tradition one including myself, grew up in, uh, not to discard it in some type of uh, act of just uh, adolescent rebellion or something, but to think about what are the categories that um, uh, I inherited uh, that I grew up that I grew up with, and how have those categories, you know, wh- what parts of those categories do I affirm, and what parts of them do I need to discard um, to be, at, you know, as I understand it, um, authentic to my faith. And um, I, I think if there can be more encouragement of third ways in our uh, in our political discourse and our cultural discourse, ways that may not feel if if we're very partisan on. Uh, one side or the other in in our polarization. Um, They may not feel comfortable, but they may actually open up space for conversation that doesn't just evolve into um, uh, the power politics that seem to define uh, most of our our conversations now, but that open up different ways of thinking about um, the intersection of faith or transcendent values or religion with our society um, and different ways of protecting the shared values that um, I think most Americans have, including around uh, sort of uh, democratic uh, representation, human dignity, um, and other things that I think most Americans can still affirm. So that's the work we're trying to do here. It's not overtly political work, but it's work about trying to reframe a lot of the conversations um, that seem so uh, so concretized or or solid in their polarizations right now, and to yeah. try to think about new creative ways to engage those those debates. 
that's that's compelling, very compelling, uh, and and inspiring. I think uh, Zachary, I, in a way, it, it sounds to me like that resonates with how you and many others of your generation I see approaching this. Right? I mean, you care about Judaism, but you don't identify politically with many of the things that the Israeli right does that the Jewish right does right and so how do you do you, do you think about a, a third way do you think about a, a way in which religion and politics can open up space for democracy and inclusion as well as faith in your life I, I think it's it's just what dr. Hummel described which is uh, an intellectual engagement in questions of religion instead of a dogmatic insistence um, and I think in, in that sense um, I hope my generation is more willing to not to ignore these questions or to simply adhere to one particular set of beliefs, but to interrogate our beliefs and to approach uh, these these uh, bigger, broader questions about humanity uh, from an intellectual perspective, um, and and also think critically about how that worldview should and does influence our politics. Um, and I think that I, I hope at least that there's an opportunity for that. I think this third way. Um, which at least in from from my perspective, my third way, if you will, <laughs> uh, would embrace a sort of, of diversity of, of, of point of view and and of background. Um, I think that there's a space um, in that diversity to have real discussions uh, about uh, religion and and the relationship between religion and society um, that uh, that that are much more productive. Um, helpful and quite right. honestly interesting right. than the polemic the polemics that we we so often are bombarded with. Right, it's really not a discussion that we should have of religion versus secularism. Uh, it's more a discussion of what are the elements of religion that matter in our lives and how do we reconcile those with our commitments to democracy broadly engaged and it's a healthy exercise for democracy i think uh, and for us as, as citizens of a democracy to be asking these bigger questions about humanity and and our place in the universe etc um and i think it's it's not that everyone has to agree but i do think that there has to be an agreement that those questions are are worth answering even if your answer is there is no answer right Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Dan, any final thoughts? No, that that is, I think Zachary and I are, are landing here at, at around the same point. I think these big questions and, um, you know, whether it's uh, what does it mean to be a human being or, you know, what is the point of it all? I mean, that's a common uh, perennial question. Right. I mean, these right. transcend any particular religious tradition. Um, these are questions that possibly every single human who's ever lived um, has contemplated. And, um, you know, if we can't talk about uh, those and bring, uh, to, to go back to what we do here at Upper House, bring our whole selves into those conversations, whatever that means, whatever uh, commitments um, one has, if we can't do that, I'm, I'm, I'm not excited about uh, where society is going um but it does seem it does seem like it's it's harder and harder to to do that and so um that's where i'm i'm holding out hope and and you know working in my own little way to try to um carve out spaces like that uh, even even in places like a university where that's part of the stated aims of a university is to be uh, an institution like that um i think we need as many spaces as possible uh, to to engage in those types of conversations
Well, and I think uh, among the many insights that we've gained from your book and from this discussion today and and uh, topics that I hope our listeners will interrogate further by reading your book and your related writings, you know, one is certainly that um, we have to hold a mirror up and see what are the ways of thought, habits of mind, uh, assumptions we're bringing to the table and how over time have we inherited certain assumptions, certain ways of thinking that maybe are closing off the very conversations we want to have. And then second, and to really echo what you just said so well, Dan, that we have to lean into and in, be intentional about creating spaces for conversation. And part of your book is about, it seems to me, how probably well-intentioned men and women of faith um, acted in ways that actually closed off conversation, didn't mm. open it up. And, and I think we can learn from that. This is not to criticize them in any way, but it is to say that what history allows us to do is learn from those who came before us and make our own new mistakes <laughs> in a new way. Um, I, I, I think this, this kind of discussion of religion and politics is what we need to have in our society. It's so rare. Dan, I'm, I'm proud to be your friend and to, to know that you're doing this kind of work. And, and I, I hope that uh, it offers pathways for all of our listeners to think about how they can do this kind of work in their own community, in, in their own way. Uh, thank you so much, Dan, and congratulations on your book. Once again, the title is The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism. Uh, Dan, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure to be with both of you. Thanks. Zachary, thank you for your poem and your insights as well, of course. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This Is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.